0: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile
0: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. What kind of a show
1: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempenar. Are the fires of hell a-glowing?
0: Is the grisly reaper mowing? Yes! The danger must be growing, for the rowers keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing! Happy 50th birthday, source of
1: all my nightmares. That's where it started, huh? That's the late, great Gene Wilder in 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. This week, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of that rich movie year with our top five films of 71. That and more. Oompa, Just going to cut it out there, huh? That's all you get. Ahead <laughs> on Film Spotting.
0: Welcome to Film Spotting. As we record this, Josh, we are right in the thick of the fall film festival season. Telluride and Venice have come and gone. Toronto closes this weekend. New York and Chicago are on the horizon. And I'd love to say that film Twitter has been dominated by intriguing raves from critics covering the fest. And there's been some of that. But am I correct that it's mostly been a competition to see who could craft the most brutal takedown of Dear Evan Hansen. I mean, the, the tweets have not been kind. That is for sure. No, they have not been. For what it's worth, saw the play. Fan of the play. Saw the trailer for the movie and, like the rest of the world, wondered what was going on. <laughs> Why they possibly made some of the choices they made. And Dear Evan Hansen may be a movie we talk about at some point here on the show, but there's no takedown coming this week.
1: Yeah, I'd say the chances of a full review have gotten slimmer. Um, you know, not being as familiar with with the source material, I wasn't as eager uh, to see it. Then I saw the trailer as well, was less eager. Mm-hmm. Now um, it's at the back of the line for me, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. And Dear Evan Hansen didn't really come up except in passing on our recent fall movie preview. One movie that provided the Material for one of my questions of the fall movie season is a movie that you have caught up with, and I think you're going to recommend it. The Eyes of Tammy Faye debuted in Toronto, and it stars Jessica Chastain with Andrew Garfield as Jim Baker, of course, Jessica Chastain as Tammy Faye, and we're going to get your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, that's one, you know, I'm not really sure if there's a consensus yet on mixed, I think, from what I have seen. I try to avoid, if I know that I'm actively going to be writing about something, try to avoid the general impression. So, from what I have seen, probably mixed, I'm going to fall on the favorable side. I'll get to more of that later.
0: Yeah, I look forward to that. But first, let's get to 1971. It is the 50th anniversary this year of movies like A Clockwork Orange. Shaft, Dirty Harry, Josh, and the best picture-winning French Connection. Spielberg's early breakout film Duel also came in 71. So did George Lucas's Lo-Fi THX 1138. Fiddler on the Roof and Diamonds Are Forever were big hits at the box office. So were smaller movies like Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge and The Last Picture Show from director Peter Bogdanovich. Some of those titles might just come up on our top five list, but... I want to start with how you encountered the films you considered for this list. We are not yet 50 years old ourselves. So hmm. even something like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that's a movie that we would have experienced as kids in the 80s, watching it on TV and then later probably VHS.
1: Yeah, let, let's be clear from the start. Neither of us was alive in 1971. OK, no, we are not that. That old. So I think, boy, it's a real mix as I look at my top five, which I'm not going to spoil right off the bat. But two of my titles I encountered for the first time as uh, part of film spotting marathons we've done in the last mm-hmm. ten or so years. Um, others uh, I had seen much earlier, um, and some I just caught up with, you know, over the course of my life. I did do a little homework. I think I saw. I think I saw four films 471 films mm-hmm. for the first time in consideration for this list I don't think any of those ended up making it if we spread this out to like a top 10 or 15 they certainly show up there um, but yeah it was a nice nice chance to watch some things for the first time revisit some things um, that I'd seen earlier and I'm pretty happy you know I feel like I I feel like I had a good sampling of 71 not a mm-hmm. completist at all there's still some things I wish I had time to check off but I feel pretty pretty good about where I landed.
0: We do have some overlap at the top of our list, and we will save that for later in the show. We'll start with our five through three picks, which are unique to us as critics. And I didn't do quite as much homework as you, Josh, but I did watch two movies for this top five, and I'm glad I did. They did not make my final top five either, but they are in my honorable mention kind of second tier, which we will also get
1: to here later in the show. But let's start your number five film of 1971. It's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Altman film. So earlier this year, Adam, we reviewed Shampoo for our film-spotting family members on Mm -hmm. Patreon. And watching it for the first time, uh, I really loved Warren Beatty's self-deprecating turn as a Beverly Hills hairdresser. I was actually surprised at how much of a clown he was willing to play there. But in retrospect, I shouldn't have been because... I'd already seen him do something like that or something in that vein in Robert Altman's 1971 revisionist Western. I just really appreciate the ways he helped make this not just a deromanticized Western but really an emasculated one. Beatty Mm -hmm. plays John McCabe, a businessman who arrives in the Pacific Northwest town of Presbyterian Church. This is around 1902. He teams up with Julie Christie's Mrs. Miller to open a gambling house and a brothel. Christie incidentally was my number five uh, pick for our top five women in Westerns list. I did that with the AV clubs, Katie Reif back in 2018. Now, thematically, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, to me, is all about upending gender assumptions. The men of Presbyterian Church, they're presented as more, quote-unquote, feminine, the way they timidly gather in groups at the bar, and they softly gossip about things. And then you see the presentation of Mrs. Miller's prostitutes, and they're smoking and swearing. They take up more of the space. Um, The men kind of sheepishly eyeball them from the corners, and then the women are staring the men down. They, They just see dollar signs when they look at them. Now, it isn't until Mrs. Miller arrives, really, that the business McCabe started gets whipped into shape.
0: How do you know when a girl really has a monthly or when she's just taking a few days off? What about when they don't get their monthlies because they don't? What do you do then? I suppose you know all about seeing that. And what about the customers? Who's going to skin them back and inspect them? you going to do that? Because if you don't, this town will be clapped up inside of two weeks if it's not already. What about when, when business is slow? You're just going to let the girls sit around on their bums? Because I tell you something, Mr. McCabe, when a good org, it's time to sit around and think four out of five times you turn a religion, because that's what they was born with. And when that happens, you find yourself filling the bloody church down there instead of your own pockets. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to sit around and talk to a man who's too dumb to see a good proposition when it's put to him. Do we make a deal or don't we?
1: So in addition to these interesting gender dynamics at play aesthetically, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is just a wonder. Altman and cinematographer Vilmos Zygman emphasize the harshness of the period setting in a way that, Mm -hmm. you know, some Westerns do, but not all of them do. A lot of the classic Westerns, you can tell, are on a a studio backlot, right? Uh, Not so here. This is the feeling of of life being lived on the edge of survival. So, a lot of things to love about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, one of my favorite Altman's, and my number five of 71. Yeah, one of the great Westerns or
0: anti Westerns, perhaps of all time discussed here on film spotting before you joined the show, Josh. And I think maybe it was even a case. It wasn't a marathon. I think it was maybe an after hours where it was kind of a listener's choice pick. It was a little bonus for our audience. And it was one that I had not seen before, despite being someone who appreciated a lot of Altman's films, at least all the ones that I had seen. And I'm looking back at a few notes here. I noted Zygmunt's cinematography as well. I remember the glow that you get in a lot of the lighting contrasted against kind of the the grubbiness of it and the squalor. Yeah, And this is a place that still sometimes looks beautiful in these indoor spaces, despite the fact that Outside, it seems like it's constantly raining and there's Mm -hmm. mud everywhere. And I remember that we don't really get introduced to a lot of the supporting characters or the people who inhabit the town. But we we just know these characters. And I think Altman knows that we know these characters. And of course, Beatty and Christie together, as they were in Shampoo, are really wonderful. There's just a comfort level that they have on screen together that helps explain why they stand out in this place together and actually feel like they belong together. There is something unique about each of them individually that you sort of understand why they
1: gravitate to each other. I love the word grubby to describe this movie. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's good. My number five
0: follows fairly neatly off of your number five, Josh, because it is directed by the man who made shampoo as referenced in your last pick, and it's Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude. I'm just going to come clean here and say this moment right here where I'm trying to intellectually explain why I so appreciate Harold and Maude is what I was hoping to avoid when I sat here on the show and told you and our producer, Sam, that I really wanted to get in a 50th anniversary sacred cow review of this movie. It's not a nostalgia pick for me. Again, not quite our generation. In fact, I saw it much later. I think even after I started film spotting, maybe one of those movies that I remember sort of flipping channels and seeing most scenes of, but never watched in its entirety until I would say at least the two thousands, but I haven't seen it in so long. I am here mostly going off of my appreciation for Ashby as a filmmaker. We already mentioned shampoo and you think about being there, a movie we caught up with fairly recently. Of course, The Last Detail, and others. I think about its unique blend of dark humor and absurdity. Cat Stevens on the soundtrack, I think two songs that were written for the movie, otherwise just making such brilliant use of some of his best songs. Ruth Gordon, of course, being Ruth Gordon. And I guess here's what it came down to, because there really are seven or eight movies that I had contending for this spot. Feel very strongly about my top four choices. This one was a little bit more of a crapshoot. It came down to a little bit of the deathmatch approach, Josh, where if you imagine all the other movies from 1971 are being put in the incinerator, and what do you want to save? That's why Harold and Maude is here at number five. I think it's the movie I want to make sure I save. And that's because I think of all the films from 1971 we're going to talk about or we considered, it's the one I most want to show my kids. I can't wait for Sophie, Holden, Quinn, Connor someday. I think they're ready. Three of them right now are really ready to see this movie and to embrace this movie. And I think it's because of that sense of humor. It's because of the way it. Manages to be a movie that is truly about embracing life, despite the the sadness and the darkness that's at its core. I rewatched today the scene where Harold and Maude meet, which is at a funeral for someone neither of them know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just visit right. funerals, <laughs> and you know you talk about your your meet cutes, and Harold is so kind of stunned by her for a second that someone at this affair is even talking to him, and. He thinks he's the quirkiest or weirdest person in any space, and then he comes up against someone who truly he has met his match in with Ruth Gordon's mod What is your name? Harold.
1: Harold Chasen.
0: Oh, how do you do? I'm Dame Marjorie Chardin, but you may call
1: me Maud. How do you do? Nice to meet you.
0: Well, thank you. I think we're going to be great friends, don't you? Can I give you a lift, Harold?
1: No, thank you. I have my own car.
0: Well, I must be off. We shall have to meet again. Tell me, do you dance? Pardon me? Do you sing and
1: dance? Uh, no. Uh, no. I thought not.
0: <laughs> and the fact that they have that little dialogue out on the street as she pulls away, and then you get that great punchline, which is that she's driven off with the priest's car. She's just stolen it, I think is really indicative of the movie's surprises. We get so many of them in this film. Now, we're usually in these moments, especially when maybe we don't feel like we've seen it recently enough, at least speaking for myself, when we can really break the movie down. Maybe Harold and Maude isn't a movie that really requires such an analysis, Josh, as smart of a movie as it is. But we would often go to someone like Roger Ebert to be the voice of wisdom and give us some perspective. And I did that today. I turned... To the great Roger Ebert to support my pick of Harold and Maud, only to discover that in January of 1972, Roger Ebert gave it one and a half stars. Holy cow. He and gave one and a half stars. Can you sum yeah. that up for me? Yeah, I'm gonna give you his final paragraph. And I will, I will dare to say this. I mean, Ebert, as brilliant as he was, and he definitely was. It's not like every single review he wrote was a masterpiece. You know, there are some that are a little shorter that feel a little more recappy like he's kind of trying to figure it out as he goes along I
1: have and, no idea what that would be like Adam I just yeah, I just can't exactly. imagine Exactly
0: I know as if he's the only person who's ever had to do that before of course when you think about his output and how many of them weren't Like that. That's what's so incredible. But he summed up his review this way. He says, and so what we get finally is a movie of attitudes. Harold is death, mod life, and they manage to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. The visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum and all the movie lacks is a lot of day old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby, filling the place with a cloying, sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Harold doesn't even make pallbearer. So hmm. full of full of little quips and jabs at the movie Roger Ebert not a fan I am a fan and I know there are many of them out there Harold and Maud my number 5
1: Yeah it's definitely a movie I think I can sympathize with that and especially as you describe you know the reality that a lot of us reviewing movies face is you know this onslaught and sometimes the timing isn't right you don't have the time to give to a movie that it deserves and I think Harold and Maud is probably one that you need to sit with and maybe even revisit again to really appreciate the rhythms and the characterizations. I do like it. I I came to it late um, and probably, you know, just because I I would have prioritized also came to Ashby's shampoo late, but something like being there, which people talked about more, but it was after a couple of years of people saying you like Wes Anderson so much, how have you not seen Harold and Maude? And absolutely, mm-hmm. the influences there, right? The the oddball characters, the deadpan tone. You mentioned Cat Stevens. You know the use of that music. Um, even something like this May December, it really turns into a romance, a bizarre yeah. romance, right? We see something like that in Rushmore in particular, and um, yeah, it's it's there. And Rushmore, the thing I will always be kind of shocked to remember is that as much as i love it my favorite anderson film i didn't feel that way when i first came out of it um it it just had such a unique flavor i needed to sit with it see it again before it Mm. really sunk into my heart and i think maybe um harold and maud is another thing it might bear in common you know that's another one that even someone like ebert might have needed to to be able to spend a little more time with to fully appreciate so yeah i'm a fan as well even though it didn't make my top five all right, number four, however, on my list, Shaft. Now, why is Shaft my number four film of 1971? Listen to this and tell me I'm wrong. Who's
0: the
1: So that of course, is Isaac Hayes' theme song mm-hmm. for the movie and it's great, not only for its musicality, but because it's completely in sync with the movie's reason for being, and that's to establish its hero, private detective, John Shaft, as this powerful, independent, innately good, yet still devilish man, really, who's in complete control of his own destiny. Now, why is this different from other instances of Hollywood hero worship? Well, this is 71. Shaft, played by Richard Roundtree, is black. Now, we discussed Shaft. This is one of those marathon picks, Adam. It was part of our 2012 Exploitation Marathon. And I'm sure, I don't remember, but I'm sure I talked about one of my favorite moments. Just a little touch, early scene, Shaft is getting his shoes shined. Director Gordon Parks, he angles the camera so that it's looking up from below in reverence. It's like Shaft is sitting on a throne here, this, you know, this, this like everyday urban throne, even when Shaft gets up to leave, the camera eagerly rises with him. Like it's, it's doing this nervous bow aside from the smart filmmaking. I think you just have to take into account the era in which it was released. I mean, Mm -hmm. having a black man as the hero of a major studio film was one thing giving him this much swagger was quite another. So Shaft's a landmark. It's a great entertainment. And for me, that's plenty of reason for it to be number four on my list. Hey, where the hell are you going, Shaft?
0: To get laid, where the hell are you going? <laughs> it's a really good film and a movie that I had in that second tier of honorable mentions. I think all your choices here that are going to come up do fit that bill. And I remember... Watching that film for the first time during that marathon and having the realization that, you know, he's kind of a black Sam Spade early on. Right. It's got all the trappings of a fairly conventional film noir yeah. with a spin on it, that it is the black take on that hero. And then in the second half, he actually becomes a black James Bond <laughs> right. with some of the plans he he concocts and the ways he gets himself out of certain situations. And there's just no doubt that that was Very much by design to sort of tell the world to tell American audiences and specifically black audiences that there was there was a new new kind of hero to reckon with. My number four film of 1971 is a movie, Josh, that some some might consider a film of 1970, but it fits the bill based on the usual criterion we apply, which is. When did it come out in the United States? When when would we have had a chance to see it? When did critics here see it and review the movie? And it's Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, a film that did debut in July 1970 at the Berlin International Film Festival, only played the film festival circuit through December of 70, and then it's March 21st in 71, when it actually came out in the United States is when the New York Times and others reviewed it. So that's my disclaimer. I'm calling it a film of 1971, despite the fact that if you go to IMDb, it says 1970. It's based on a book from 1951, followed the years here. It's set in the 1930s under Mussolini's fascist regime in Italy. It stars Jean-Louis Trintignant as a member of Mussolini's secret police force. And really, as the title suggests, it is all about this man trying to live as normal a life as he possibly can, which under this fascist regime means basically being a killer. And the plot line of it is, is that he's actually ordered to assassinate his former college professor, this kind of father figure and mentor, someone who's anti-fascist. So symbolically, there's a lot going on here, and it's a lot more than just an assignment for him psychologically. It is this kind of disposing of his past and further trying to cement himself as kind of the most typical man of this era or of this time And this country, he even marries maybe the blandest woman he could possibly find just because he wants so badly to just fit in to not stand out in any way at all. That woman, by the way, played by the great Italian actress Stefania Sandrelli, Dominique Sanda, also in this film, just two great Italian actresses. And as I said, this is a movie, that's fundamentally about a character struggling with this idea of normalcy. It stems from a homosexual encounter He had when he was 13 and the crime he committed as a result of that encounter and the way Bertolucci and here the cinematographer is the great Vittorio Storaro, the way they render that struggle visually is what is so incredible about the conformist. There's not a single frame, a costume or a part of the production design that clearly isn't deliberate. The use of color is really striking. There are these nods to fascist filmmaking and fascist filmmakers like Lenny Riefenstahl and other German films from the 20s and 30s. But it also has this kind of new wave feel to it in that it's highly expressionistic. It's really bold in terms of the angles it chooses, the way the camera moves the jump cuts it employs, especially in the flashback sequence that is the origin of his fascism. We see that play out and it plays out almost like we're experiencing him dreaming as opposed to witnessing the event as it actually occurred. It's his subjective, emotional recollection of this defining moment. And like him in the world then and now, everything about it feels disjointed, feels disconnected. It's... This character who's never really in control of himself, despite the fact that he's always trying to exert control, but he's not because he's always repressing any real sense of individuality. He's he's always a character in the world. If you have seen the movie, anyone out there, or you do see it and want to do a deeper dive, and you're really, really bored, I wrote a pretty good paper about this movie, and specifically that sequence, Josh, back in uh-huh. film, Italian cinema, not back in the 1970s but it was back in the the late 1990s that is available on the old film spotting website I'll link to it in our show notes at the new film spotting website also I just found this today didn't have a chance to rewatch it but if you really want to take a deep dive into some of the aesthetic elements I was talking about. There is a video, I think it's 11 or 12 minutes long on YouTube called Shadow and Light Filming the Conformist where Storaro and Bertolucci analyze the Conformist and really break down everything that went into the visual style. Lastly, fun cinephile angle, the assignment to kill that professor, that mentor figure to him, Bertolucci confessed it was meant to represent his own symbolic murder, of one of his major influences, Jean Luc
1: Godard. Okay. Did you put that in your paper?
0: Did actually. All reference right. Referenced that. Referenced
1: <laughs> there you, it. There you go. Uh, you got me there. This is not what I was able to catch up with, though. If people come after you, I've got your back on, on the release. Look, looking at it here, I think even in Italy, it didn't get a wide release till 1971. So I, I think you're safe there. Thanks. All right. My number three pick, it's another marathon pick. This one from our Elaine May Appreciation Series. We did that in 2016. I am going with A New Leaf. This was both of our choices, actually, Adam, for Best Picture of that marathon. May here is not only the writer and the director, but also the co-star. She plays Henrietta Lowell in Heiress, who is targeted by another blue blood, Walter Matthau's once rich bachelor, who has spent all his inheritance and is now targeting wealthy single women so that he can continue living this opulent lifestyle he's become accustomed to. They are just so good together. I love the bit on their honeymoon when Henrietta gets caught in her nightgown and there's this extended physical comedy piece. That's both hilarious yet also kind of sweetly intimate, even though we never quite know if we're really rooting for these, this couple romantically throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. It just, it touches on so many notes that scene. It's also interesting how may, you know, throughout the movie as the main creative control here sets up so much of this as a showcase for Matthau's, affably threatening goofball. And that includes this great scene where he proposes to her. Oh, Henrietta, if you care for me at all, even if you don't care for me at all, but feel that you could
0: learn to care for me at all in a reasonable amount of time please say yes there is often a tidy profit in speculation I, I care for you henry i do care for you oh henry get it. Ah, damn it to hell did you hurt yourself
1: no no kneeling on broken glass is my favorite pastime it keeps me from slouching you think you should get up henry so if there are still some listeners who haven't caught up with elaine may yet and there's no shame in that we didn't ourselves till a few years ago I would say you might as well start with her first film, My Number Three of 1971, A New Leaf. It is so good that while you were talking,
0: I was glancing at my marathon notes and I was just reading certain lines from the movie completely out of context, Josh, and having to stifle right. laughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as not to distract you. I mean, he drinks the wine she serves him, and his response is, and this this might have been I don't want to take away anything from May because obviously it's probably something brilliant she scripted, but it feels like something Mathau might have improvised as well. He says, "Do you have any straws?" <laughs> and I'm not even sure why that's so funny. Or later when he's kneeling on broken glass and and says, "Kneeling on broken glass is my favorite pastime." Yes, he keeps that's me it. from slouching. Yeah, there's so many good lines. In a new league.
1: And and so much of it does have that feel of improv, which, which Mm -hmm. of course, you know, maybe, maybe comes from her background, her comedy act with Mike Nichols and just back and forth type stuff. But that's the sort of electricity that this movie has.
0: Okay. Well, my number three film of 1971 is a movie that when I first started forming this list, I actually had in the number one spot. It is danced around from one to two to three. And it really does fit in any of those slots because it's that good and it's the rare case i haven't actually done the math josh i am kind of just going off conventional cynical wisdom here but it's the rare case where the academy didn't really get this one wrong one of if not the best films of 1971 is absolutely william friedkin's the french connection best picture winner Yep. Best picture winner. And it is one of the options we gave listeners in the poll question. We'll get to those results in the next segment. We asked, what's the best film of 71? Got some great comments. Stephen R wrote in the French connection has smaller ambitions than a lot of other movies that came out in 71, but it is for the movie. It is trying to be basically perfect. And I feel like I can't say that about the other movies on this list. Again, we'll get to some of those other titles that were included in the poll a bit later. But this is a case where I see what Steven's saying. I'm not going to say he's completely wrong, but I think we at least have to discuss a little bit or question the idea that The French Connection does have smaller ambitions than maybe one or two or three other titles that have come up or will come up over the course of our list. I mean, I get it in terms of it being a cop movie. It's a thriller. It's an action movie. Sometimes it's easy to dismiss those kind of genre movies. It did win Best Picture, which is usually a strike against a lot of films. It was number three at the box office that year. So how how arthouse or how challenging could the French connection really be? But you know what, let's talk about something that again, we take for granted a lot when it comes to action movies, the car chase that infamous car chase. When we did our top five car chases here on Film Spotting, I went back and looked at my list. Somehow, I had this at number four. In my defense, perhaps, I had another freaking pick at number one on that list, and it was the great car chase from To Live and Die in L.A., but that's another movie, another list. This one, Popeye Doyle, Gene Hackman, pursuing a hitman on the train in, I think, his 19... 71 Pontiac Le Mans. And the whole sequence actually only lasts about two minutes and 50 seconds. The chase part of it's really only about a minute 20. And it is one of those car chases that when you compare it to a lot of other really memorable ones or even a lot of conventional ones, it really stands out. You do not have any music on the soundtrack at all. You just have the sounds of the cars, of the train, of the near misses, of the exasperation that we see on Popeye Doyle's face. You have a point of view that's mainly from the hood of the car, kind of like you're strapped to it and you're about to hit everyone who comes along this path as he is obsessively trying to chase this man down. The cinematography is pretty incredible. We recently talked about this DP on the show when we revisited Network as part of our 7 from 76 series, Owen Reitzman, who also shot The Exorcist for Friedkin. Now, I mentioned this back when we did the car chases, and it still strikes me as one of those things that just seems like it can't be true, Josh. But then again, when it's the 70s and it's Friedkin, it's probably not apocryphal. But apparently, when they shot this scene... This was not a closed set, and they did not tell anybody. They didn't notify any authorities that they were going to be conducting this elaborate chase sequence, except for the staged crashes. Otherwise, the traffic we see in this great car chase is real. I mean, Can it, you fe- imagine it feels like that. that. It feels like that, though, right? That really is what makes it so incredible. So the car chase, I'm going to say incredibly Ambitious, But what else is really interesting about it and what makes it ambitious, I think, is the depiction of Popeye Doyle as this officer trying to catch the bad guys in pursuit of justice becomes totally unhinged and obsessed to the point where the line between right and wrong is completely blurred. And that sequence, the car chase sequence, is one that ends with him catching the hitman and shooting him at the top of the stairs, but notably shooting him as he turns to run away from him. So he shoots him in the back. Again, some lore around this film is that some police officers who were acting as advisors on the film were really mad about the sequence because they said, of course, well, a police officer would never do that. He wouldn't shoot the man in the back like that. And Friedkin stuck to his guns and said, no, the guy I'm basing this movie off of absolutely would have done it. That way. But again, that's a very deliberate choice on Friedkin's part to culminate the scene in that way with something that may seem a little lacking in heroism or valor. The final shot of this movie, I'll try not to spoil too much of the French connection if you haven't seen it in the past 50 years, but the final shot is him chasing this killer down again, this time on foot. And Friedkin just keeps the camera still as Hackman runs away from it and we hear off screen a gunshot. And that's the end of the film. It's, it's ambiguous. It's, it's open-ended and a little eerie and just sort of figuratively when you're watching it, when you see him running away from the camera, the way Reutzman shoots it again, it's that still shot, but the, the lighting, everything about him heading off into this distance almost suggests that he's entering another dimension where where all law, all order completely dissolve. It's just all devoured under his obsession. That is his last line before he heads off. He says, that son of a bitch is here. I saw him. I'm going to get him. And you see in his eyes that he will not let anything stand in his way. And that's not uncommon for Friedkin protagonists to be driven by that kind of darkness i think the french connection is an incredible film like i said absolutely deserving of his best picture win in 71 even if i do for now josh have it at number three on my list
1: yeah i gave this one a lot of consideration i think it was this and harold and maude we had been batting back and forth about a revisit doing a full sacred cow Mm -hmm. review as part of this um sort of brief series we've been doing and if we had done that might have bumped up a little bit higher because i'm going largely from appreciative memory here but yeah certainly certainly deserves strong consideration for for this top five so what do listeners think is the best film of 1971 we'll have results of the film spotting poll when we come back along with our final picks stay with us
0: i've got a perfect puzzle for
1: If you are wise, you'll listen to me. What do you get when you guzzle down sweets? Eating as much as an elephant eats. What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think, think will, will come, come of that? I don't like the look of it. Oompa, loompa, doompa dee da. If
0: you're not... Tammy Faye. What'd you do?
1: Hello, Mother. This is Jim Baker, my husband.
0: (laughs) Jessica Chastain there as Tammy Faye Baker in The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which opens nationwide this weekend. Andrew Garfield co-stars as Jim Baker, Tammy's husband, who people of a certain age, like us, Josh, Remember, as one of the most prominent televangelists of the 1980s, in 1989, Baker was sentenced to 45 years in prison for fraud. This movie is directed by Michael Showalter, who made the very good 2017 rom-com The Big Sick. The Eyes of Tammy Faye came up a couple of weeks ago during our fall movie preview. You have seen the movie, and as I alluded to, we lived through the 80s. The Bakers were inescapable in popular culture, it seemed. Does the movie... Convinced that there is more, there was more to Jim and Tammy Faye than we remember
1: or what we saw in parodies from the time. I mean, it had to for me because my only point of reference was Jan Hooks portraying Tammy Faye Baker on Saturday Night Live, visiting the church lady. I think Phil Hartman was was Jim Baker, actually. So I didn't really know much beyond that of the story. I mean, it would have been a little kid. At that time, and so yeah, this was interesting to get some of the background info. A lot of it drawn from the two thousand or two thousand two documentary of the same name, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Haven't seen that one, but from what I understand, both that and this, I can attest to, very much rehabilitation projects. You know, mm. to to say that there was more, and of course there was more to to this woman than what we saw on Saturday Night Live or in news reports. Jessica Chastain as Tammy Faye is going to make you believe that no matter what. She is the powerhouse force in this film, the reason why I liked it. I think overall as a movie it's it's a little strange. It's both really obvious like hitting its themes and points very like I mean underlining them like she on like her makeup is underlined, you know. But at the same time it's also kind of Thinly developed, there are things we wish it explored further or more deeply. So the material isn't great here, but Chastain as Tammy Faye does something. It's curious, Adam, you, you know, I've talked about this, how this is the sort of performance that I normally would bristle at where it's, it's, it's really big. It's an actor going through a physical transformation. It's geared for Oscar attention, right? But, but why I think it works here is because that all lines up from what I understand of the real life Tammy Faye. Baker. This this is someone who had a peppy, cheerful, bright public presence. The entire movie adopts that, and Chastain does too. This is almost like you're, you're experiencing this movie, what it would have been like to live through the fame and the failure of this ministry through her eyes, how she would have seen it and how she sees herself. So it's really a galvanizing performance I couldn't help but admire at the end. I even started thinking— that it, it kind of reminded me of... We've been going through a very sort of loose Joan Crawford marathon at home, maybe you know a movie every month or so here with a family. And it did remind me of the ways Crawford could kind of just take over a film that dared to cast her. And a lot of times these were films about women who were at their wits' ends or, or, or facing societal expectations that they wanted to upend. And so uh, it was interesting to see... Chastain do something similar here, just grabbing this movie by the throat, giving it a fierceness that kind of aligned with what you understand Tammy Faye Baker might've had underneath all that niceness that she presented. So so I think it's definitely worth seeing for Chastain's performance, which I think is probably what intrigued both of us mm-hmm. about the project to begin with. I hope to catch up with it soon. The Eyes of Tammy Faye opens wide this weekend.
0: Next week on Film Spotting, we kick off our 2021 OOV review. Last year it was Christopher Nolan. This year we considered the entire filmography of New Zealand director Jane Campion with a series devoted to all eight of her feature films, including her latest, The Power of the Dog, which comes to theaters in late November and then to Netflix in December. So that was really the impetus. Besides, for me, wanting to catch up with these films, most of them blind spots, for me, it seemed to set us up well to consider her new film, which has gotten all sorts of acclaim coming out of various film festivals, including for Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. Our first champion will be Sweetie from 1989, which is one of those blind spots for me. I know it's not a blind spot for you. It's made at least one or two top five lists over the years, including, I recall, top five female directed debuts i think you had it at number five so you must think sweetie is a pretty good start
1: yeah absolutely i think i probably went on a bit of a campion kick after the piano i'm trying to remember when i would have first seen it it definitely would not have been in 89 so that's probably when i first saw it but cannot wait to revisit it as part of this oeuvre view Sweetie is currently available. I love the way you say that on the Criterion
0: channel and available for digital rental. More information about the Campion oeuvre view is at filmspotting.net slash Campion. Also next week, we prepare ourselves. Finally, some fun, Josh. We prepare ourselves for the end of the Daniel Craig Bond era by revisiting his first outing as 007. 2006's Casino Royale for its 15th anniversary. Are you telling me you don't consider the card counter fun? I'm saying it's a little more grueling, Josh. Just just a little, little tougher sit maybe than Casino Royale. This also helps prepare us for Daniel Craig's fifth and final bond, No Time to Die, coming out here in a couple of weeks. I've already done my homework. I was inspired to re-watch Casino Royale for the first time since 2006 when it was reviewed here on the show by our recent film spotting family bonus content discussion of Sean Connery's second feature as Bond from Russia with love. And I even then followed it up with Quantum of Solace, which I now think I was too hard on back when that came out. I'm all in on Craig as Bond. You and, are. And I've mentioned, I just don't know how you can argue there's a better Bond at least a better Bond than the one we get in 2006's Casino Royale. So I look forward to re-watching it
1: again here in preparation for this discussion. We'll see what you think of it. I mean, I know you haven't revisited Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan, so I don't know how no. you can be so presumptuous to <laughs> proclaim Craig uh-huh. the best Bond until you do that homework, Adam. Yeah,
0: yeah. You, you got me there, Josh. That brings us to our latest deeply flawed film spotting poll that is trademarked. Don't worry, it's registered. We couldn't help ourselves with Daniel Craig going into Bond retirement. We had to join the cacophony of voices posing this question, who should be the next Bond? Now, before we share the options, we provided a few things we considered. And by we, I mean mostly our producer, Sam. I think he spent about three days on this poll question. Oh,
1: so tortured. Poor Sam was so tortured so about tortured. This. And yet, And
0: yet, for all that thinking that went into it, he still got hit with all the accusations of who he overlooked, all the mistakes he made. That that just comes with the territory. Sam Sam knew that when he took the job <laughs> that he would be in peril, not unlike Bond himself. So, first we did go with all Brits. It just seemed it seemed like a bridge too far to me, Josh, to be throwing an American into the mix as James Bond. Call me call me a purist, I guess. Eh, Nobody wants that. No. We did also try to keep age in mind. We're not going to see another Bond movie for, what, three or four years. Most first-time Bonds have been in their early to mid-30s. Connery was 33. Craig was 38. Roger Moore, 67. I think (laughs) as the joke goes. We did, however, include a couple of actors in their early to mid-40s. So again, flaws abound. A name we left off our list. Someone long discussed as perfect Bond material, Idris Elba, he turns 50 this year. No, Yeah. We decided too old. Wow. Good for Idris Elba. Ageist here on film spotting when it comes to James Bond. He's going to
1: come after us and beat our asses. Yeah.
0: Well, you know that he will and that he certainly could. So there were a lot more considerations. We'll jump ahead here to the options we gave you, the Idris Elba-less options we gave you for who should be the next bond josh
1: those options are riz ahmed we have we have ages and where they were born here adam i mean this is sam did a lot of research I i hope this is all correct riz ahmed 38 london born john boyega 29 also london Tom Hardy, how old? Well, you probably see it in front of you. I would love to hear if you just had to guess how old Tom Hardy was. Yeah,
0: I can't play that game having seen it. I'll
1: give the listeners a a second to guess. Actually, 43, also London-born. Michael Fassbender. Oh, we love Michael Fassbender on this show, even if we haven't talked about him all that much in recent years. He is 44, Irish-German. Daniel Kaluuya is 32, London. Dev Patel, 31, London. And Robert Pattinson, 35. I also would not have guessed that. From London, we are going to give you the option to vote Idris Elba. I mean, other, to vote other in this poll. (laughs) Yeah, Idris Elba
0: definitely getting the most votes there for other. We will note, historically, the casting of a new Bond has been a star-making, not a star-taking turn. So the likelihood of any of these actors actually being cast as Bond is maybe unlikely and i don't know we should be watching more british tv instead that said if these really were the final options josh and you are
1: who cubby broccoli you get to you get to make this choice who is it <laughs> <laughs> I think Cubby is correct because that's the only time I've ever encountered the name Cubby. So I think you're Mm -hmm. right there. I understand that in early voting, and maybe this isn't a surprise, Dev Patel has the lead, followed by other, there we go, I'm guessing Idris Elba. Also, I hear that we have a vote or two for Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who was a writer on No Time to Die. Pattinson right now in the last place, so maybe that's a surprise considering how vociferous his fans can be. All of that makes me think, Adam, do I, you know, the comment about, you know, we're going to get one in three to four years. Usually they do two to three, four of these. Do I vote thinking I don't want one of my favorite actors stuck doing Bond? Because my instinct was Patel. I was with, I was with those in the lead. Like that's who I would most like to see. If there was a Bond movie coming up with Dev Patel, I would be very excited about that Bond movie. I would not be excited. This is kind of the MCU question, right? With Mm -hmm. some really talented directors entering the MCU. I would not be excited about Dev Patel only doing Bond for the next 10 to 15 years. So I'm a little torn there. Um, I'm going to go with John Boyega for my vote. And that's because I think he would be great. I think he's extremely talented. Also a movie star, like all caps star. So he could make that work. And he's been able to kind of manage being in a Star Wars series and balancing other stuff. So mm-hmm. so maybe he'd be able to pull that off. I think it's Boyoke for me. Okay,
0: a great pick. And of course, everyone's going to be shocked that I'm going against Michael Fassbender here. But honestly, my instincts are to consider someone like a Dev Patel or a Daniel Kaluuya, who I think is just incredible. And I'd watch him in anything. And I think he would bring a completely different presence, even just physically yeah. to James Bond. But that said, I don't know that I have ever been more at odds with film spotting nation than responses to this poll question. Because to me, the right answer is, is fairly obvious. It's Robert Pattinson.
1: Is this based on Tenet? Because he was a good Bond and Tenet? Partly.
0: Okay. Yes, it is. It's based on the fact that I think he would be our first. Really weird Bond. Well, that and I is, is true. Like the idea <laughs> of a weird, really unpredictable, yeah, James Bond. And that said, I think there's still the balance there of the fact that he's got the looks, he's got the overall suave demeanor. It's not like we're taking that much of a drastic turn from who we think James Bond is, right, except right. everything about his actual on-screen persona and his his energy. <laughs> and his choices couldn't be more different than anything we've ever seen from James Bond before. And yeah, I do think I'm still seeing him as the guy from Tenet in my head a little bit too, in those incredible suits, yeah, looking impeccable. And he pulled off that spy kind of character. So yeah, for me,
1: Arpat is the choice. I'd love to see that Bond. He was also a little off kilter in Tenet, you know, That's as it. you're describing. Mm-hmm. And that I th- I thought about that and I would love to see that as well. But also, like, of this group, and these are all talented actors, I think he might be the best actor among them. And so that, that's where I fall back to, like, I don't want to see the best actor in this bunch doing Bond for the next 10 to 15 years. But I respect
0: the choice. It is a miracle, isn't it, that in the year 2021, you said that, and I'm not disagreeing with you about a guy that 10 years ago or whatever we all dismissed as
1: the guy in the Twilight movies? Oh, my gosh. You're not kidding because... My my high school daughter has been having friends stop by after school here and there over the last couple of weeks. And I think it's because these movies have been recently moved to Netflix. That's what they're doing. They're watching like a half hour of Twilight. So I'm walking through the family room watching this actor I revere in Twilight and thinking, wow, we've come a long way. We have come a very long way. You can tell me how wrong
0: I am for choosing Robert Pattinson or... Tell Sam how wrong he is for even thinking about this poll question. It's so flawed. FilmSpotting.net is where you can vote and where you can leave a comment. You can also email us feedback at FilmSpotting.net or leave us a voicemail. The voicemail line is working.
1: 312-264-0744. All right, we will get to the results of that poll in a couple of weeks. Next week, we'll have Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last Massacre. You did the same thing to Dean. These guys want to play cards with me,
0: not you. Be that as it may. You know who the biggest winner in this game is? It's you. You know who the second biggest winner is? Look, it's you. All right, not many entries to this one, Josh. I'm
1: not sure why. Well, I haven't seen this movie. I performed it. I haven't seen it. And I think you might be the only person who has seen it. So that could be. And likes it as much as
0: I do. Well, that's true, too. Jim Pellini in Beth Page, New York has some explanations as to why we performed a scene from this movie in conjunction with last week's show, so I'll try to give some hints here, maybe encourage a few more entries, but I'll have to do it by redacting a bunch of things. First, this movie's protagonist and the movie we talked about last week, The Card Counter, feature lead characters seeking redemption for past failures. Also, the star of this movie and the star of that movie are America's hottest mom and dad, which I think is, is well said, and you have the director of this movie and the director of the card counter, Paul Schrader, who both started their careers as writers. That's a big hint.
1: Yes, it is. And they wrote the screenplays. They wrote the screenplays for both of the films. Did you and Jim see this movie together? We didn't. Were you the only ones in the theater?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, he's he's in New York, Josh. Okay. I saw it here in Chicago, but He's out there. It sounds like Jim may appreciate this movie almost as much as I do, or he just wants to win a film spotting t-shirt. If you know what movie we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 20th.
1: I'm going to jump in here with a quick plug for something I'm doing at the day job that I think film spotting listeners will be interested in. So this is over at think Christian. We're starting the TC movie club. I'm really really excited about it. It's basically going to be what it says. We're going to watch a couple of movies uh, separately, but then get together virtually to discuss them on specified dates. I'm also going to be making, and I've been having a ton of fun with this, video essays about each film in advance. So the people who join the club, they will get the video, watch that, they'll watch the movie we're going to discuss, and then we'll get together to have that conversation. And here's the catch- For film spotting listeners, the first series is going to be all about the films of the Coen brothers. So theological deep dive into the movies of the Coen brothers. We're going to do four, Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, and True Grit. So this is going to start in October. I think we're eyeing about October 22 to maybe get together virtually. You would get the video essay and have time to watch the film before then. Again, that's Fargo. So really excited about that. You can sign up if you want to be a part of this at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. And uh, you can easily click on that and join the club. Your mention
0: of the Cone brothers reminds me of a conversation I had just a few days ago with my daughter, Sophie, of course, gets mentioned now and then here on the show because since she's in high school and a budding cinephile, or maybe I can just call her a cinephile, we watch a lot of the movies that I talk about here on the show together. She is, for the record, she'd hate me if I didn't say this. She's on Letterboxd as Soph Kempinar, and like a lot of high school kids, she's chasing the clout, Josh. She's at 490 followers. She really wants to get to 500. So- Make it happen. My good deed. Make it happen, My Film good deed for, listeners. for my daughter, yeah, is throwing that out there. But I realize that even though just recently on Twitter, I was patting myself on the back for how good of a- Film father, I am that Sophie posted her top 20 films of all time on Letterboxd, and there are so many good choices there. I realized that my daughter has yet to see a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. She's yet to see a Quentin Tarantino movie. She is also yet to see a Cohn Brothers movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not shocking because again, I know Sophie, she's in high school, she could handle movies from all those filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But that that's all very adult material. So you'd want someone who, you know, is a cinephile who can appreciate who I've had a similar thing where, you know, my, my daughters aren't as versed in the Coen brothers. Hail Caesar was the first one they saw when it came out, loved it. But that, that was largely because they'd already had the language of Hollywood musicals from watching at home. Right. But to see something like, you know, blood simple, the the Mm -hmm. violence in something like that, or, or, um, you know, the harshness of even Big Lebowski, which is a comedy, but is a really harsh comedy. Yeah, I think it's, um, speaking of Letterbox, Sam challenged me to put up a list of an order for viewing Coen's mm-hmm. for the teens in your life if they haven't seen them. And it was really challenging because I had to think about, like, how do you kind of ease them into this sort of content so that the goal, of course, with people like us is so they do come to appreciate what these filmmakers are doing. So I, I get that, that it might be a little bit late coming, uh, but I can't wait to see, uh, can't wait to see Sophie's ranked Coen Brothers list when she gets to that. Yeah, I just have to decide where we're going to start.
0: But one of those three filmmakers, either PTA or Coen Brothers first on the list, and we'll have to get to our own at-home marathon here pretty soon. I won't be following your suggestion, Josh, because I think your Coen Brothers starter pack is
1: a little a little off, at least for me. Yeah, but you, I don't think you understood it. When you responded no, to it, it, you were kind of like, it, it seemed like you were going by your personal rankings and you mm. got to throw that out the window and yeah, think no, about I, the- Yeah, I agree.
0: I, I agree with that. I think if I did the list, and this is ultimately where I'm going, I'm not just here to chastise you. If I was going to do that experiment, I don't think there's any way it would match up exactly with my Cone brother's ranked list. It might stick a little closer to it than yours or not, but it wouldn't really follow it because I would be considering the movies and the order that I would help kind of nurture along someone right, into right. the into the world of the Coen Brothers. So I did get that assignment really, and I mentioned this on Twitter, it really just comes down to the fact that I haven't seen O Brother, Where Art Thou? since it came out in theaters and it's always been kind of mid-tier Yeah, I said it, mid-tier Cone Brothers for me, but I don't stand by that in any way. It's just that I love all the other films so much, and I've seen them all multiple times, Yeah, the ones I really love, and that's one I just haven't revisited. I'm sure if I saw it again, I'd say, oh, okay, I get what all the fuss is about. But again, I bring it up because I think it's a really good idea. I was kind of slapping you and Sam on the wrist for for quote-unquote wasting that on letterboxed and Twitter instead of us actually diving into that on the show. I think those kind of starter packs with filmmakers might be pretty
1: decent lists. Yeah, yeah, we can absolutely get to it on this show. And, and yeah, you, you mentioned that because O Brother was the one I would start with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, again, I threw my tears out the window, like completely, I pretty much love all of their movies or at least appreciate all of them. And I just kind of started for scratch. So So we'll link to that. In the show notes too, and people can check that list out and we'll get some good conversation going and hopefully down the road, make it a top five on the show. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's Memory Machine
0: Part 2, Reminiscence and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Next week on The Next Picture Show, it's a one-off show. They have a conversation about Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days Coming, the true best pairing with Reminiscence, but Strange Days, it seems... A difficult film to track down, not available at all for digital rental. And then they're going to riff on that a little bit and discuss other strangely hard to find titles of the digital era. So a lot of great stuff, as always, coming up on the next picture show.
1: Oh, man, I'd love to revisit Strange Days. That was uh, one I think I appreciated at the time, but maybe not as much as I should have. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More information is at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support film spotting is to join the film spotting family
0: over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a host of benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. We're going to wrap up our mini Bond Marathon in September here. Bond number three. Pairing The Living Daylights, Timothy Dalton's debut, with 1995's GoldenEye, Pierce Brosnan's debut, a little birdie told me, a little film-spotting birdie not named Sam told me that your take on The Living Daylights, and for the record, I have no idea what your take is, what even ballpark it's in, your take on The Living Daylights is crazy? Maybe it was a
1: stronger word than that? Ridiculous? I'm not sure. Would you be using the phrase "ballpark" because this little birdie is someone Ooh. I hung out at the ballpark? That's with right. This week, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. I mean, I've already and I told him this when I met him, Joshua Youngerman. Like he's out. He's no longer my Bond guide. He, he you know, he's yeah. he's very well versed in the canon, but we are just completely at odds in terms of what we appreciate about these movies. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was great. Uh, he, you know, living in New York now. Younger man but he is from Chicago, was back for the week, said, let's get together. Huge Sox fan. Huge White Sox fan, said, let's get together. Um, I've got the week open, but um, I am going to the Sox game Tuesday night. Turns out back on Father's Day, I had told my dad, I'm going to get you tickets. The two of us, we're going to go to a Sox game. He loves to see baseball in the summer and happened to be the same night. So I was like, all right, let's, let's meet up before the game. At the park. so yeah, we sat sat down in the seats and had some good bond discussion. If you know, misguided on his part. Hmm. So just a little bit of bonding over bond. Is that what you're saying? I guess, I, yeah. I mean, if if you want to be I, hokey, you could say. Yeah, that. Yeah, I could say that.
0: <laughs> also, a benefit of being a family member on Patreon, you get access to our monthly trivia spotting events. We have one coming up this weekend, Friday, September seventeenth, seven p.m and i'm just going to say it right now i will surely lose trivia spotting for the 14th consecutive time i will not i will not take first place but i'm throwing down the gauntlet as i was in traffic this morning and had a lot of time to think <laughs> i came up with
1: you, wait a minute i
0: came up with you were thinking the, you
1: were thinking about trivia spotting i was i while, was while
0: in traffic okay And if you play Trivia Spotting, you know that one of the tasks each team is burdened with is to come up with a team name. Oh, you got a good one? Those team names should be ideally somewhat clever. I've only contributed ever one team (laughs) name that actually got chosen by my team. I'm pretty proud of it. Because I think it was the same month that this movie came out, one of my favorite movies of last year, movie you liked a lot too, and it coincided with our 80s edition of Trivia. My team was the Truffle Shuffle Hunters. Good. So that yeah, was yeah. my one good. my one bit of inspiration. That's good. Until today, Josh. Lightning struck. Until today, lightning struck. On 290. I've the got, heavens on, opened. On 290, I've I've got the best trivia spotting name. Everybody else can just bring whatever generic, boring names they want. None of them are going to compare. I cannot wait. I I am doubly excited for Trivia Spotting this (laughs) Friday now. Patreon.com slash Filmspotting is where you can sign up.
1: what do I owe this extreme pleasure, sir? Anything wrong, sir? Wrong. Why should
0: you think of anything being wrong? Have you been doing something in your shirt? Yes. It's just
1: a manner of speech, sir.
0: Yes, but it's just a manner of speech from your first corrective advisor to you that you watch out little Alex because next time it's not going to be the corrective school anymore next time it's going to be the barry place and all my work ruined if you've no respect for your horrible self you at least might have some for me who've sweated over you a big black mark I tell you for everyone we don't reclaim a confession of failure for every one of you who ends up in the
1: stripy hole I've been doing nothing I shouldn't sir the millisons of nothing on me, brother. Sir, I mean.
0: We get back to our top five films of 1971 countdown with that clip from A Clockwork Orange. Before we get to our final two picks, we want to share your picks for the best of 71. We asked you a couple of weeks ago what is the best film of that year. Your options were A Clockwork Orange, Harold and Maude, The French Connection, two films from my list. Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show, a film that almost made my top five. Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which did make Josh's top five. Or other, you could write in literally any other film that came out 50 years ago. Josh, how did this poll end up?
1: Others in last place with 8%. In fifth place was my number five choice, Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller. That received 14% of the vote. Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude receive 15%. Then jumping up here for Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show, which got 18% of the vote. William Friedkin's The French Connection got 19% of the vote, but winning this poll, probably not a surprise. Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange receiving 26% of the vote.
0: Here's Kent in Detroit. He said, Dirty Harry, Carnal Knowledge, Sweet Sweetbacks, Bananas, Clute, Straw Dogs, Duel. Lots of great films that year. It came down to Clockwork versus French Connection for me. I gave the nod to Kubrick. The movie impacted me in a
1: way that few others had up to that point. Here's Rick Taylor from Kelowna, British Columbia. Clockwork will win this easily and rightly so. However, I almost voted for other in the form of The Andromeda Strain, surely a sci-fi classic. But in mulling things over before I cast my vote, I checked the reviews. And shockingly learned that it had a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 60% on Metacritic. I can only presume that Josh's parents were movie reviewers back in 1971. No, they were, Rick, I'm afraid they were far kinder people.
0: Yeah, I like The Andromeda Strain a lot. A movie reviewed here on the show as part of a marathon, I believe, a 70s sci-fi marathon. Good movie, not going to make. The cut for me, Andrew in Alton, Illinois says the last picture shows what I'm going with, maybe because it's the most recent one I've seen, maybe because I've been reading a lot of Larry McMurtry and maybe because it actually is the best. It kind of reminds me of a West Texas version of a Wong Kar Wai movie. These characters are all longing for something and none of them find it, maybe because it never existed or that it no longer can exist. Bogdanovich films it like a movie from the nineteen fifties. It was so thrilling to see the different ways this movie aped the style of the films that its characters would have been
1: watching in that picture house. Well said, Andrew. Yeah, I like that wong connection. Here's Peter Coders. I feel I feel like Ketters might might be Dutch. I feel like I should know this one. Sorry, Peter. I apologize. Harold and Maude is a rollicking, existential romp, all at once dark and funny, heartfelt and heartbreaking. It is worth a spot on this list just due to Cat Stevens' soundtrack alone and Ruth Gordon Gives the performance of a lifetime. It gets my vote as the best film of 1971. Thank you, Peter,
0: for... Supporting my number five choice, Rachel Gorlin here says, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is an amazing American frontier tale and has lost nothing in the 50 years since its release. Its origin story of one Washington state town is resonant, funny, horrifying, and haunting. The Leonard Cohn score is one of the most effective marriages of image to music in film history. Support there for Josh's number five. Thank you to everyone who voted in the poll. Thank you to everyone who left a comment. And that brings us, Josh, to our top two picks, as it turns out, we have the same one and two picks. We just have them in a slightly different order. Of course Why we don't do. you go ahead and do the honors? What's your number two, which happens to be my number one film of
1: 71? A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, I mean, listeners else, were right. What else is there to say about this movie? We, we already said it all, I think, in our July Sacred Cow review. That was a pretty thorough conversation. I really enjoyed digging into it. Maybe what I'll add here is that um, another 71 film I've caught up with since has helped me appreciate Kubrick's satire slash social commentary slash provocation all the more. We've been batting back and forth, Adam, about Dirty Harry uh-huh. the last few shows, a little bit on Twitter, how basically I find it despicable. You see it as something more sophisticated. hmm And I do. I think A Clockwork Orange is one of those films playing in the same sandbox. And what I mean by that is depicting acts of violence in a way that might be open to various sorts of interpretations. I just think Clockwork threads that needle, really, really difficult needle, in a way that Dirty Harry really doesn't manage. Uh, Before that recent revisit of Clockwork, I thought it might—I was a little worried it might be one that I couldn't get behind, even though I'd seen it before— and wrestled with it a little bit before. I was afraid I'd look at it now and find it to be clumsy, find it to be irresponsible. Those are words I'd I'd apply to Dirty Harry. But Kubrick's consistently bleak vision of humanity actually is what made this work for me. It just has the artistic control to be able to play in this sandbox. He's not playing any games here. I mean, based on this, and I know I differ with other Kubrick fans uh, on this interpretation, I I think that he thinks humans are drugs at heart and in clockwork he's making that as clear as can be um now i i can't say that i see humanity the same way kubrick does but i can say for me he made the number two film of 1971 yeah and for
0: me it's the number one again my top three have kind of been in flux for the past two days but ultimately i went with it at number one just because it is a film that features imagery that is so iconic Instantly recognizable, identifiable back to this movie and Kubrick. The political humor of it, the sociopolitical commentary, those elements that you touched on, and how open ultimately to interpretation it all is. We talked about the ending of the film and we see it ultimately very differently, even though it doesn't really affect overall our takes on the movie. All the stuff about redemption and reformation and free will that I totally forgotten was such a key part of that movie that of course is all there and actually the dirty Harry comparison is pretty smart the movies couldn't be more different in so many obvious ways and i will just say real quick because i almost brought it up earlier in this list everything i was saying about popeye doyle and the french connection i think almost all of it could apply to the way we see Harry Callahan depicted. Yeah, ultimately. I was thinking about that as you were talking. It, it sounded yeah, by, it sounded
1: to me like what Dirty Harry wanted to be, you know? Yeah, I, and, yeah, and how
0: I see Dirty Harry, how Don Siegel and Bruce Ortiz, the cinematographer, do ultimately render Harry as someone that I think were intended to have some ambivalent feelings about. But both Dirty Harry and A Clockwork Orange pose a really interesting question about our civil liberties. And what we're willing to compromise, perhaps, when faced with violence, when, when faced with sort of unspeakable horror or something in society that we can't completely wrap our heads around and we feel like we have to stamp it out by whatever means necessary, what are the consequences of that type of response? I really do think both movies are dealing with that question. Clockwork Orange, maybe I'll give you Josh a little bit more thoughtfully. We got this response to our recent 50th anniversary Sacred Cow discussion of A Clockwork Orange from Jessica Chow, who said, I was born in 72. My family didn't get cable TV until I was in high school. Looking back, I'm thankful for that. Unfortunately, I remember the horrible Clockwork Orange event like it was yesterday. I was maybe eight or nine years old. I was sleeping over at a friend's house that did have cable, and not being able to sleep, I turned on the TV. Lo and behold, either Cinemax or HBO was just starting to play a movie. Great, I thought. I can watch TV late at night. I remember being so riveted to the screen because this crazy character was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I also remember being in utter shock and horror over just about every scene, yet not having the sense to turn it off, nor any adult around to make me. I watched the whole thing. I was left confused, shocked, and horrified. I had horrible dreams for weeks. Did crazy people like this really exist? I never told anyone about it either, which is too bad because as a little kid... I didn't know how to process it. I love Kubrick as a director, but I refuse to ever rewatch this movie that forever altered my mind for the negative as a young
1: kid. I enjoyed your discussion on it, though, Jessica says. Wow. I mean, that that reminds me, which I know I've talked about on the show before, my my kindergarten unsupervised viewing of the deer hunter. I mean, <laughs> they're just oh, yeah. Some things you're not going to recover from. No,
0: but. Actually, I I did pick that because I thought it was a great and funny story. Thank you, Jessica, for sharing. But also because it kind of speaks to why I think the movie is ultimately so great. That, yes, she was way too young to watch it, but that it can haunt her, that it could have that type of effect. That it is a film with that much power and provocation behind it is a reason why it has stood the test of time and is still so powerful and provocative, I think, 50 years later. Finally, another listener comment here, Josh, on Clockwork. Chris Jones wrote in said... Hi, guys, really enjoying your thoughts on Clockwork, especially the link between appreciation of art and humanity, which reminds me of the Tess in Never Let Me Go. Now, Chris knows he's going to get read on air if he mentions anything about my beloved Never Let Me Go. But I also really love that because I did think about that as well, watching A Clockwork Orange. I almost mentioned it during our review, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to fall down that rabbit hole with Never Let Me Go, but Chris allowed me to fit that in. One major thing with the film, Chris says, that always bothered me and talks to some of your points about free will, goes back to the source material, in that the UK version of the book has a whole extra chapter. In this final chapter, Alex is back in the world after having been through these various systems and treatments, and he walks past a fancy cafe. He looks through the window and sees one of his old enemies from a rival gang, having tea and cake with friends, and he says how good that looks, and how that might be the better life choice. For some reason, the US version of the book left this chapter out, This totally changes the reading of the book and the film, which went with this version. It ends with him back to his old psychopathic self and seems to say simply, you can't change people, whereas the UK version adds the more hopeful addendum that they will eventually come to the change themselves. Now, it's not entirely clear to me whether Chris is saying he actually thinks that original UK version ending that epilogue is better and what the movie should have gone with or not. It sounds absolutely horrible to me. And I can't imagine how it would have ruined the movie had Kubrick gone with an ending like that. That's at least my take on it. But I did a little bit of research on this today, Josh. And Chris is right. There's all sorts of details surrounding it that I won't get into. But apparently Burgess, Anthony Burgess, the writer of the book, was always a little bit conflicted about how to finish his book. And apparently even wrote something like in a draft to his publisher. "Uh, We'll see how it could end. We could throw this in. And they, they went with it. And then he apparently did approve the American version that took it out, that shortened the book, discarded the epilogue. Later, he said he had issues with it, said he felt like he was railroaded into it and didn't really have any say. Again, whole lot of drama around it. Bottom line, that ending sounds terrible to me. But
1: wouldn't that have supported your reading, though? I mean, I, the ending may have been terrible, but I thought that's where we differed, where where I felt felt like... The ending Kubrick devised was completely showing that the Ludovico technique had been knocked out of Alex and he was, he was like completely back to his former terrible self. I and and you had seen it a little differently, I thought, from our conversation, which this version would have supported is kind of this more Mm. like he had been reformed right
0: in this version of the book the UK original it sounds like they're suggesting he was reformed right I think I think there's a, a lot of layers to it but no I I don't think that would be a good ending because for me the power of the ending of the film A Clockwork Orange is that ultimately he is forced back into okay the character he originally was that's, that's the whole key for me. It's not really about whether or not
1: he Wait, had for, any forced say. forced back into the, a law-abiding citizen or forced back into the droog he was? He's forced back into the droog. It's maybe
0: always inherent in him, but they actually rewire him as I read the film to force him back to that. But character. why would they want that? Well, that, that's what I was arguing during that discussion and even was kind of alluding to here. I think that's the whole, that's the whole point of the satire is that to get whatever they want in terms of the ruling power as they shift with the mood of the people to stay in power, they will manipulate people in whatever way they see fit. And if that means changing him back to that miscreant, that mm. deviant who is going to be a burden on society, they'll do it. That's, that's the whole provocation of the film is that in that moment, he becomes oddly a sort of sympathetic figure because he didn't have the free will to decide who he wanted to be.
1: Okay. Well, as you said, it's remarkable that this film could manage to be read so differently, but appreciated similarly, which we, yes. we have in being it in our, uh, our number one and our number two. So let's end with a movie that I don't think <laughs>
0: has such open-endedness, maybe doesn't require as much work to interpret, but is nevertheless, obviously a favorite of both of ours. It's my number two. And since it's your number one, I'll let you start. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory.
1: Yeah, we we heard it at the top of the show, and I'm going to close out my list with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There is a good reason to have changed the title of this adaptation of Roald Dahl's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. As Willy Wonka, the eccentric, reclusive candy maker who invites five kids to tour his factory, comic genius June Wilder gives perhaps, perhaps the crowning performance of his career. Now, we can argue whether he was funnier in Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles, I don't really care. As long as we're, we're in agreement that Gene Wilder is a comic genius, you can you can take your pick of those performances. For me, his Wonka is, is the sort of character of which both dreams and nightmares are made. So you think of the dreams. How about the sweet, sincere singing of pure imagination?
0: Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination.
1: He's nowhere in the same universe as Fred Astaire, but at least he's nodding to Mm. the master while gingerly stepping downstairs during this number. Then let's go to the nightmares. We heard it. Again, at the top of the show, that tunnel of terror sequence, it's kind of like this, speaking of Kubrick, a uh, Squeak version of 2001 Stargate trip. I mean, I don't know if Jessica had seen this at the same age, which might have been when I had seen it. She uh-huh. would have been much less terrified than A Clockwork orge. I mean, this was really traumatic the first time I went through the tunnel of terror with Gene Wilder. What i like are those moments, though, where he combines these two, these mm-hmm. two elements. Let's go back to Pure Imagination. He sweetly plays at one point with one of the kid's hair, just kind of tossing the hair affectionately. And then at the very end, he yanks <laughs> a hair out that causes the kid to flinch. And that's it. That is his Willy Wonka. You know, you, he's, he's scary. He's unpredictable. Now, as a film overall, aside from Wilder, this is my favorite kind of children's movie. It's unpatronizing. It's a little bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. It leaves kids not so much having learned a lesson, though, yeah, I mean, to your point, Adam, about it not being that complicated, it, it takes a broad swipe at brats and and shows them you better behave. But really, it's mostly an introduction for kids to how delightfully weird the movies can be. So for me, it's the best movie of 1971. I love Adam. Absolutely love that you've got it at number two. I would not have guessed this, so I can't wait to hear why. Well, I mean, other than The Wizard of
0: Oz, I don't know that there's a movie I've seen more times. And I'm just going back to being a kid, being a kid, it coming on TV or having early VHS tapes of it taped off the TV and just watching it constantly as a family and also on my own. I am going to share this comment, though, from Patrick in our poll question who said, I can't say that these selections are wrong, sir, wrong. I didn't (laughs) vote since I've not seen them all, but I know that people rave on about McDowell's singing in the rain, et cetera, et cetera, and Gene Hackman's amazing performance, et cetera, et cetera, or the last picture show's perfect score on Rotten Tomatoes, et cetera, et cetera. But I suggest you revise your film spotting contracts to include section 37B, which should state that any best movie list from 1971 would include one with a lead performance with a different gene. It's all there, black and white, actually color, clear as crystal. If you want to view Paradise, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory would be the one from 1971 to watch Good Day, Sir. (laughs)
1: That was good. You
0: get you finally got to Gene Wilder at the end there. So I did. I I got a little bit of it in. (laughs) I got a little bit of it in, but I just I thought that was too good not to share. Here's also listener Darren Gunn. He says, I believe it's one of the best book to movie adaptations, one of the best musicals and one of the best examples of fantasy within a reality. It's funny, it's magical, it's scary, and it's sweet. And it's got a brilliantly maniacal Gene Wilder at its center. Backing up your point, Josh, it's easily the movie I've seen more times than any other. It was on repeat as a kid, and it's likely the movie I quote most frequently. It's not a guilty pleasure, and it's not nostalgia. It's the best movie of 1971. And I love that because it does make me think about how new viewers take Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with someone who was our age, Josh, or even in their 20s or 30s, who just saw it recently for the first time. That said, I don't think its greatness is tied to nostalgia for me, nor do I see it as a guilty pleasure. Every time I have revisited it, maybe watched it with my kids, it's absolutely held up because of Wilder's performance, because of even that production design, where if you think about the bar they had to clear, where they had to bring this magical place to life. It had to seem to us as kids, and even to us now, believably like paradise, like a place that we could only imagine and we would want to stay forever. I think they absolutely pull it off. The songs are all really good. Yeah, that tunnel of terror, that's that's maybe creepier than anything in A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> I'm going to say, Jessica, it really <laughs> might be. It really terrified me as a kid, but in a good way. And I liked that it confounded me a little bit there. It confounded me a little bit too, even as a kid. And this is something I like about it now as adult. When I look back on that whole sequence with Charlie and the end of the film and how it seems like he's not going to win the prize, but then eventually does. I like that. Charlie screws up. He does break the rules. Mm-hmm. That that he does the same wrong thing that all the other kids do. Of course. There is a significant difference in the nature of his transgression versus theirs, and that there's something very uplifting and sentimental about uplifting, no pun intended, in them taking the fizzy lifting drink, sort of elevate themselves above their position. Grandpa Joe and Charlie just kind of want to experience life kind of floating above it all for a little bit, right? That makes sense. We get the, the kind of metaphor there, whereas all the other kids are just about their own personal satisfaction and, and gratification. But what really matters isn't that he is perfectly obedient and authority abiding. How would that make any sense? Where would Wonka be if that's how he was? That's how he went through life. It's, it's that he wasn't corruptible. And I think that I think that that the the fact that he does make a mistake, but that he can't be bought, that his his soul is intact to quote Al Pacino from sin of a Woman, is what makes Charlie such an interesting figure and someone who, as a kid, whether we really knew it or not, was someone we probably felt like we wanted to emulate a little bit. But again, he was human. You know, he, he right, had that right, same right. disappointment when he, when he doesn't get the golden ticket. As humble and sweet as he might be, I think we, we all probably as kids saw ourselves in him a little bit. And just like him, there's no way we would have been able to avoid at some point not indulging <laughs> in the fantasy opportunities that Wonka's
1: factory provided. Yeah, and think, and think about going back to the production design. You know, almost all of that had to be entirely practical, sorts of effects yeah. and sets and it, it just it holds up in that wonderfully tactile way that you know we just don't get anymore in so many of our movies hmm.
0: those are our top five films of 1971 i'm guessing you have a few honorable mentions josh what would you like to name here
1: yeah i can i can round out my top 10 list uh i and this might be a cheat you know tv movie but spielberg's duel is Fantastic. And I have it at number six. Um, a Jacques Tati film that I watched. This was part of my homework for the first time. Trafic, um, really thought, oh, this is going to bump. I'm such a fan of his. This is going to bump up into my top five and it's great. I mean, I've got it at number seven here on my list. Um, but couldn't quite knock out any of the others that I had up there. Lucas's THX 1138. I have at number eight. Tulane Blacktop. More homework here. Monte Hellman's film. Mm-hmm. What an experience! I mean, so pure. Just you know, the the pure experience of the road trip there, um, and then the Beguiled, um, starring Eastwood, Dirty Harry, Don Siegel. In this, yeah, Don Siegel again. I think they they pulled this off. Uh, were a little more successful with the Beguiled. Of course, I saw this the first time in advance of Sofia Coppola's really good remake of it. So, and just real quickly. To fend off all the the people just seething at me, my top 15 are rounded out by French Connection at 11, Clute at 12, Last Picture Show at 13, Sweet Sweetbacks Badass Song at 14, and then Harold at Maud at 15. I'm sure there are people who are still quite angry yeah. that a number of those, including possibly you, Adam, are not higher. I do appreciate them. They're in my top 15 of the year. A really, really strong year.
0: Yeah, no, that doesn't cut it. Sorry. <laughs> Top five material, Josh, you missed it. I have a second tier here. You, as usual, were more dutiful than me. You're a stronger man than me. You ranked them. I had a hard enough time ranking my top five. I definitely wasn't going to be able to rank the seven or eight movies that were in this second tier contending for the six through ten. I'll just mention them by name. You had three of them on your list, your top five. Shaft, A New Leaf, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Another movie that you just mentioned, lots of listeners did in the poll, The Last Picture Show. And then I'm going to mention three movies, Josh. Maybe four if you count it based on when it came out. You can make the case it's a 71 movie, though most consider it a 70 movie. These four movies that just remind me how much Franker, is that an actual word, movies were in the 70s about sex? Then films in 2021 are those movies being Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge, mm. Alan Pakula's Clute, Nicholas Roeg's Walkabout, and the movie that, again, might be a 70 film technically, though Ebert had it on his top 10 of 71, Luis Buñuel's Tristana, starring Catherine Deneuve. Those movies are in my second tier, all fighting for a spot in my top 10 films of 1971. Again, those are our favorites from 71. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us, feedback at
1: filmspotting.net. That's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. That's where you can vote in the current film spotting poll as well. We want to know who should be the next James Bond. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter.
0: Out in limited release this weekend, Oh, Josh can't wait for Cop Shop starring Gerard Butler (laughs) and Frank Grillo. That new crime thriller from Joe Carnahan.
1: What is that supposed to mean? Uh, (laughs) Although I I do recall very much disliking a Joe Carnahan film. I can't recall the title. It wasn't Narc? Uh no 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 I think there's... didn't he do the gray which is pretty solid all right keep re- keep keep going okay. I'll, I'll okay. get back I'll to I'll let you. you search
0: all right prisoners of ghostland Nicholas Cage another film strapped into a suit that will self destruct in five days because. Of course, The Mad Woman's Ball, a period drama about a woman unfairly institutionalized in a Paris asylum. That's directed by and starring Melanie Laurent. Out in wide release, Cry Macho from Clint Eastwood, who also directs. He plays a long-retired rodeo star and horse breeder who goes on a rescue mission to Mexico. That's in theaters and on HBO Max. And The Eyes of Tammy Faye is out wide as well, recommended by Josh here on the show. Did you find the Joe Carnahan title? Everyone is just dying to hear.
1: Smoking aces. Oh, smoking aces. I don't know how I could have forgotten that. It has the rare distinction. Few films earn this, Adam. The zero out of of four stars at Larson on film.
0: Oh man, that's a top five I want to hear someday. Josh (laughs) Larson, zero star movies. I think I've only got maybe two.
1: I can't can't do a top
0: five. Can you name them? No, I can't. I'm gonna have to how dig how into many the stars archive. did
1: you give smoke and Aces? <laughs> Didn't see it. Well, so, you're,
0: a, you're a lucky man. Yeah, sorry. Can't weigh in there on the smoke and Aces controversy. Next week here on the show, the 15th anniversary of Casino Royale. We will mark it by having a Sacred Cow discussion of Daniel Craig's debut as 007. And we will kick off our Jane Campion OOV review. People are are dying to participate in this <laughs> OOV review, Josh. The power of the dog has everyone... Oh, yeah, excited don't sell this short for Campion I'm not I'm I'm being serious okay good we're gonna start it
1: with 1989's Sweetie Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessault and Sam Van Halgren without Sam and Golden Joe this show would not go our production assistant is Kat Sullivan thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago more information is available at WBEZ.org for Film Spotting I'm Josh Larson And I'm Adam
0: Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.